Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. We pray that this message is a blessing. Well, it's great to be here. Hope everyone's been enjoying themselves. Uh, over the weekend. It's a little bit of a recovery weekend from last weekend where it was really tough to go for Aunt Brisbane in anything. Uh, I feel like we nearly lost the Olympics last weekend after a poor performance in every single code, but it's great to be gathered. New hope, new life, new opportunities as we're opening up the scriptures. Um, been a good friend to a lot of people here, and so in a way this feels like a bit of a second home coming and hanging out with you this afternoon. If you brought a Bible with you and you're a Christian, open up to James chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't freak out at all. We're going to have something coming up on the screen. In a moment, we'll do this Bible reading together. But I've been married now for just gone 13 years. We celebrated our anniversary about a week ago with Aaron. Uh, and let me say, uh, getting married has been a learning curve in things not to say. I'll never forget the moment where we went shopping for bridesmaid dresses in the lead up to our wedding. It's not really the thing you should maybe take the would-be husband along to, but still, we're in Meyer and Aaron's showing me around all these different things. What do you think of this? What do you think of this? And I should have smiled and nodded and said nothing. Instead, I made the terrible mistake of looking at one and saying, you know what? I just don't like frills. Now, she already picked out her wedding dress. It had been prepared, she'd done the fittings, it was hidden away somewhere in a secret corner, and in the moment I said, you know what, I just don't like frills, her face just dropped. The blood drained, and she went quiet, almost like it says in Revelation, where there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Let me tell you, I didn't feel like I was in heaven for that half an hour of silence. It's very much in purgatory for the rest of the day. Sometimes we say things that we wish we didn't say. Have you ever said anything that you regret? Well, today we're going to be picking up on a piece of Scripture that's one of my favorites. And no doubt as I ask that question, whether you've said anything you regret, your mind is reeling back to moments where perhaps in a fit of anger, maybe trying to be funny, words came out of your mouth that you wish in some magical way you could just reach back and put them back in. Why? Well, maybe they hurt someone. Maybe they damaged your reputation. Maybe you had got into trouble. Maybe they messed up what was, at the time, a really good experience. Or maybe in a family scenario, you just launched another nuke into an already active war zone. The truth is, our tongues can set off a tempest. And few of us are careful enough with our words, which is why we need to talk about it. Now, if you're new to Christianity or you're exploring the whole God thing, you need to know that God is intensely interested in our lives. He isn't some deadbeat, distant deity. Like any good earthly parent, our Heavenly Father, He cares deeply about helping us navigate the complex web of relationships that make up our life, which is why the Bible is packed with this broad category of literature known as the wisdom literature. Books in the Old Testament like Proverbs, which we'll touch on a little bit, or Ecclesiastes and Job, these Old Testament books are trying to help teach us the wisdom that God has woven into the fabric of reality. And despite our culture telling us that there are no boundaries, no borders, no binaries, no fixed, no givens, the Scriptures teach otherwise. That whilst all of us are given by God the freedom to choose what we do, We aren't given the freedom to choose the consequences of those actions. 
And even in a fallen world, where in the shadow of Genesis 3, now corrupting God's good design, God's wisdom, it still functions as this kind of a cause and effect structure that generally governs how our lives play out. So maybe if you're wondering why relationships are so difficult, wondering what you can do about it, if you want to know what you can do to lean into peace and build rich friendships, if you want to know how you can make a real difference in the world, that's why we're going to be diving into today's text in James chapter 3. It's penned by Jesus' little half-brother, and the goal is to glean some gospel wisdom on living relationships that are life-giving as we seek to renew our words. Now, if you're a note-taker, it's my custom to always get you to write Acts 17.11 at the top of your notepad. Go and read that later. You'll know why, but it's your entreatment from the Bible to test everything that's said from the pulpit against Scripture itself. And if you're wondering about a title for this message, it's called Speak Life. Let me open in a quick word of prayer, and then we'll read the Scriptures together. God, our Father, we thank you for these words from heaven that penned through men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You have not left us in the dark about who you are, who you created us to be, and how we find that right path to be restored to you and to ourselves and to the world and to each other through the gospel of Jesus. We thank you for the scriptures we're about to read and pray, Lord. Each one of us has such a deep need to hear it. Would you open our ears and soften our hearts, and would you move our wills that we might respond and incline ourselves to your wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. As I shared, it'll come up on the screen behind me. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and With it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce water. This is the word of the Lord. So there are these studies that have shown that on average, human beings speak about 16,000 words a day, or at least wives do, which comes to just under about 6 million spoken words a year 
per person. Now, if we pause that out with the 83-year life expectancy here in Australia, that means somewhere in the vicinity of 485 million words each of us will speak across a lifetime. And that's not even counting tweets, texts, emails, or stand-in emojis, which you can have an entire conversation in via text. But what do all of those words do? As we read through the Christian story, we we learn what God's words do. God's words create. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we see God beginning to speak in order to bring order to the chaos of creation. Our whole universe, you might say, is itself a story, whereby divine words, God reveals himself. Laws of nature are governed with a mathematical language, we're told. Stars are words. Heavenly bodies are words. Trees are words. God's words create worlds. And nowhere is God more revealed than in us, his image bearers. Human beings have some three billion base pairs of genetic information that makes up our DNA. You and me, are the longest known word of coded information in the universe. God's words create worlds. And God's words reveal who he is. Now, we may be tempted, because we speak so many words, to think that our words, by comparison, are mundane. They're impotent. They're unimportant. But the Christian story says no. Our words matter to God precisely because they too create worlds. Our words exhibit a power beyond their size and immediate effect. Consider James's shotgun spray of metaphors in this passage. Bridles and horses, rudders and ships, sparks and forest fires, almost like he's trying to appeal to everyone, no matter their background or story or vocation. For a small muscle, he says, our tongues are incredibly powerful. Proverbs 18.21 puts it this way. It says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. The invitation of Scripture, you can speak life or you can speak death. Consider for a moment what your words have built. What kind of life for you and the people around you? What kind of relationships with family members, with friends and colleagues, maybe spouses or significant others, children? What kind of people are your words creating? Just why scripture invites us to be careful with our words. Don't play casually with powerful weapons of mass destruction. We shouldn't be casual with them. Our words impact our world. And it's why the caution at the beginning for teachers, the ministers of the word in God's church, that we who teach will be judged more strictly. But Jesus extends that warning to everyone. In Matthew 12, verses 36 to 38, he speaks about us being judged for every careless word. All of us. Christians are given an incredibly high calling. Scripture describes it as a ministry of words. 
that our words as those who bear God's name reveal what God is like to the rest of creation, that we get to tell the Christian story. And we live, sadly, in a cultural moment where the reputation of the church is overshadowed by deep suspicion. Why? Because of a failure of our words. Not calling out evil and instead sweeping it under the institutional rug. Of not being a voice for the powerless and the silent and the pressured and the oppressed. Imagine how beautiful the church would be if when people entered and saw the gathering of God's people, the word that they used to describe our words, life-giving. That spending an hour with Christians meant that you walked away feeling heard and loved and challenged and encouraged and inspired as to who you were created to be. And consider the entreatment in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach And admonish one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and songs in the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. I tell you now, that kind of church, that would be the greatest apologetic for the truth of Christianity. And imagine the world a church like that would create. The balm that God's church might be for the hatred and the cynicism, the nihilism, So much of the critical spirit, the tribalism of our cultural moment. We might create good. We might build up. We might cultivate life. We might challenge evil. That's the vision for how God would have us use our words. Consider Paul's encouragement in another letter. Ephesians 4, 29. Do not let any, any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Man, how I wish that verse described everything that I said. But can we be honest for a moment here? (laughs) Maybe a few cracked smiles all of a sudden. Because church is meant to be the place where we shed all pretense, right? The place where we no longer hide or pretend, where the masks come off. We tell the truth because the truth is my words are not always beautiful. My words often reveal something that's ugly or hidden within. Too often they tear down rather than build up. They torpedo the world that I love. Because as much as words create worlds, so too do words destroy worlds. The Bible is packed in numerous ways with how our words can do harm. First, we tear down others. What is the worst thing that someone close to you has said about you? Probably isn't hard to recall to memory. Sociologists tell us that those words stick in a way that others don't. Using James' metaphor, Whose tongue set your world on fire? See, the truth is, the words of those we love, they carry incredible weight. It's why family and friendships and marriage can be so hard. Why long friendships are ended, sometimes after a single fight. Sadly, our words about those we love are often completely undisciplined, drifting towards criticism far too easily. 
Blaise Pascal, a famed Christian thinker and inventor and scientist, philosopher, he made this statement. If all men knew what each said of the other, there would not be four friends in the world. What a terrible indictment on how we use our words to describe those we love. Now, there's nothing wrong with difficult words. Words carefully considered and intended to do good, like a well-trained surgeon whose scalpel cuts straight to the heart. After all, Proverbs 27, 5 to 6 says it this way, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. But take stock of your words as you're sitting here right now. What have you said to people who are made in God's image that tore them down? The careless words, the callous words, maybe even the cruel words. And what have you said, uh, said about those people to others that if they heard, if they found out, would crush them? Proverbs 25, 18 says, telling lies about others is as harmful as hitting them with an ax, wounding them with a sword, or shooting them with a sharp arrow. Sticks and stones, that's a dumb metaphor. Second, we tear ourselves down. Every one of us has an inner monologue, negative things that we believe about ourselves. Christians might dress this up a little bit, you know, quoting Romans 12, 3, where it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. We baptize our inner monologue with this Christian language and think it's okay to tear ourselves down, to treat ourselves with sober judgment. But yet, despite being reminded that we are damaged by evil, we are still made in God's image. The value that God gives to us, the dignity, the worth, the gifts, they're designed to reveal God to the world. So when we walk around saying that we are worthless or that we're useless, we attack the image of God and we participate in our enemy's self-destructive habits. But in addition to tearing ourselves down, the third, sometimes we also inflate ourselves wrongly. Warning, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. And this happens maybe most on social media, right? Where we're tempted to project an image. The social media sirens should be going off in our heads. And I've got a helpful diagnostic question from John Wesley to do it. Every time you're about to hit post of that photo, or that update, or that story, or that reel, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I'm better than I really am? In other words, am I putting on a mask and a filter to the world, am I a hypocrite? Because the problem of wearing a mask, of being the ancient day actor or hypocrite, is that people tend to fall in love with us for what they think we are, which only forces us to, tempt to, to be tempted to hide behind those fig leaves and fern bushes because we're afraid of letting people see who we really are. It cuts us off from real love, being known and loved. Our puffed up words build a performative prison around us. So as James says, these are just a few of the ways in which we all stumble. We all need to take some serious stock of our words the tongue, man, it can be wild. 
It can spew evil. Perhaps it's the hardest of all beasts on this planet to tame. And James, just like his older half-brother, Jesus, he says that our words actually diagnose something that's true of our inner condition, our heart. Jesus says that our words are an overflow of our heart. In Luke 6.45, he says, A good man brings forth good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings forth evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. There's an opportunity for a moment of self-diagnosis. You see, James says that it is way too common to see Christians praising God with their lips on Sunday in church. Fresh water. When in the car just minutes before, they were at someone's throat. Or maybe giving a message or two to the driver in front of them. Or maybe after the service, they're spilling out salty language, telling stories about another Christian. And fresh and salt water do not flow from the same spring. So if it's true that our words can be deadly, if they can sometimes be poisonous, what does that then reveal about the state of our hearts and where do we turn with that? Well, if you're new to Christianity, there is good news here, really good news. Please listen closely. Because Christian preaching is never a sermon on all the ways you fall short and then telling you to go forth and do better. It's not that. Why? Because at the core of us is a problem that we cannot fix on our own. See, the heart of the human problem is a problem with the human heart. According to the Christian story, we have been created for good by God, for deep and meaningful relationships, to love God with all our being and our neighbor as ourselves. But having been created for good, all of us are damaged by evil. By betraying God or ignoring God or putting something else in God's place, all of us have sinned. And so now it's our hearts that are polluted with the evil of this world and our desires that are curved inwards in selfishness and sin rather than outwards in love towards God and others. And yet the Christian story says you are profoundly seen by God and loved, known to the depths, warts and all, every dark word whispered behind closed doors, and he still loves us. See, even when God became human in Jesus, this incredible vision of what humanity could be like, speaking words of truth and grace and justice, we used our words against him. Some humans used their words to betray Jesus. Some of his closest friends used their words to deny him. Others used their words to falsely accuse him. Some used their words to chant for his crucifixion. Men of renown failed to use their words to defend him. And others used their words to mock him. And yet in response to that, our Savior did not turn away from us. But the words that came out of him, prayers for his persecutors, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Provision for his mother in his dying moments, making sure that his love is extended to the practical needs of those in his world. And promises to a thief, a mocker whose heart had been softened by the suffering of his Savior on the middle cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. The words of God to us extend forgiveness, provision, and life through Christ's death on the cross. And there is this awesome image that's given to us 
in the Bible of what then? To us who have been entrusted with this incredible picture and responsibility, a ministry of words that would create worlds around us of life-giving nature, what do we do when our words are so messed up? In Isaiah chapter 6, you get one of the most glorious visions of the presence of God. It's this picture of a prophet being called up in a vision to stand in God's throne room. And there as he sees this incredible beauty and glory and majesty and power of God, he feels entirely unworthy. Woe is me, for I am a man of an unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. I am undone. And the response of God in this is not to say, yep, you failed the test. You cannot speak for me. Instead, God sends forth transforming power. An angel carries a coal from the altar of God and touches Isaiah's lips, declaring these gospel words, your guilt is removed, your sin has been atoned for. He is made clean, new and empowered. Who then will go for us? puts up his hand, here I am, send me. If you're here today and you don't know the forgiveness and grace of God through Jesus Christ, that invitation is for you to come to God as you are. All of the unclean words, all of the unclean things, all of our story and mess and darkness and brokenness, all the devastation that we've wreaked on other people's lives, come first to God to find healing, forgiveness, atonement, and peace. And then to pick up those pieces as God makes you new to go out and start to bring healing in the world. How do we do it practically? How do we tame and discipline this crazy muscle that sits in our mouths let me give you a few thoughts. First, consume God's words. The best way to change what is in here and what is in here is to be taking in stuff that purifies us, that teaches us who God is and what God wants and the kinds of words that are life-giving to those around us. We've read in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the prophets of old were invited to eat God's words in order that they create a fire in their bellies, that those words would come back up, that they would be able to speak life. Number two, another passage from James, Jesus' little half-brother, and this is what I call the antidote to social media. James 1.19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. You know, he's buttering you up. My dear brothers, you know something's coming. It's going to be hard to hear. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now you get the antidote to social media thing. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We need to listen before speaking. To not jump to the impulse that's within us to defend ourselves and our position, but to truly hear another person, to understand where they're coming from, to seek to see them as God sees them. Third, where to guard our words. Psalm 141 verse 3 says, as a prayer, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Think, Lord of the Rings, the keep 
that great gate that cannot be opened unless the forces of evil rush out in those moments where you feel your temperature rising in conversation, how do you keep those doors shut? Lord, put a guard over my mouth until I'm ready to let what needs to come out, come out. Ask yourselves these sorts of questions. Is what I'm about to say helpful? Is it helpful? Is it holy? Would I be able to say what I'm about to say in the presence of Jesus? And if not, maybe, maybe I, I shouldn't say it. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 speaks of encouragement as the primary criteria. Does it encourage them? And a challenge to not leave things unsaid. And number four, and I've put this one three times because it needs to be emphasized, particularly for all of you who are heading towards deep and meaningful relationships with a significant other. There's young adults in this group, 10 things that I hate about you. It's a great primer to be able to start relationship conversations. Number four, watch your tone. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The Apostle Paul was this beautiful line in Colossians 4, 6, where he says, let your conversations be always full of grace. Full of grace is the tone, the atmosphere, the sentiment that people walk away with. If you ever want to read something that's fascinating, Jonathan Edwards, one of America's greatest philosophers and theologians, a trigger for the great evangelical awakening in the early 1700s. He made a series of resolutions, and these resolutions are way better than the average New Year's resolution. I invite you to go and read them. But I want to share this one. Resolved never to say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love for all mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility, in sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule. Often, when I have said anything against anyone, to bring it to and try it strictly by the test of this resolution. And if you post that resolution above your mirror while you're brushing your teeth at night, and just consider that day, how did I use my 16,000 words? Did my words create worlds? Or did they destroy them? Did they build up? Did they tear down? Lord, how might I need to have my heart and my mouth purified to carry on your mission in the world? You know, we get this image from James of tongues that light a fire that burn down a forest. <laughs> you know, the early 2020, I had my own run-in with a bushfire, lost my wedding ring in the process, escaping it with a couple of friends. It was a hectic experience. We experienced the destructive power of those bushfires as the shadows, these omens of smoke, crowded out many of our eastern seaboard cities. But there's another image of the tongue and of fire that comes throughout the scriptures. In Acts chapter 2 of the day of Pentecost. And it set the world on fire in a very different way where God's people were so full of God's presence that the words they spoke were ones that pointed everyone to Jesus, to his love, to his grace, to his goodness in the gospel. 
I don't want the tongue of fire that James speaks about. (laughs) I do want the tongue of fire that Luke wrote about in Acts of the Apostles. Let's pray together that God will make that happen for each of us. God, our Father, whose words spoke all things into existence and by whose word all things are upheld, we speak to you now. We come boldly to the throne room of grace where Isaiah stood, that Jesus opened up to us by his blood. And we ask that you would change our hearts and that that would flow out into our words. That this church here at New Life Brisbane and wherever we go as carriers of the Christian story, that our words would be like yours, bringing order from chaos, beauty from brokenness, bringing healing, restoration, redemption, confronting evil, and calling out who people were created to be, building them up and pointing them to Jesus. Would you forgive us for all of the ways that our words have fallen short? And not just our words, but our thoughts and our deeds, the things that we've done and the good things that we've left undone. We cry out for your forgiveness. And we ask that as we meditate on the scriptures, as we consume your word, as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, or that you would allow your words and your life to flow out of us to the closest relationships around us. Lord, I know there's people in here right now who would have all kinds of relationships on the edge. Their family member, maybe with their kids, teenagers, maybe with a parent or spouse or relationship, significant other, and they're wondering, is there a way back? Lord, would you let them eat all of the dark words and would you give them a whole new vocabulary of life and forgiveness and humility and redemption to bring healing to those relationships? And Lord, for a world that is so full of empty words, of partisan politics, of cynicism, nihilism, Lord, would you let your people be a beacon of words that are full of power, full of hope, full of grace. We need your reminder and the spirit to chasten us, to discipline our words, to tame this tongue, to speak life in Jesus' name. In whose name we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can contact us at church.nu or through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.